Exodus chapter 1. And we're going to have a fun time tonight. When we read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, we're impressed with God's awesome power, with His unbridled power. And yet the careful Bible student understands that God's most spectacular accomplishments are not His creative works, but His redemptive works. You see, it takes no love to create. But it takes an intense love to redeem and to retrieve, especially when you're willing to retrieve what once rebelled against you. There are only a few chapters in the Bible that are devoted to the creation story. But the whole book of the Bible is about the redemption story. The Bible is the story of how God has redeemed or bought back mankind from the slavery of sin. This is also the specific theme of the book of Exodus. The word Exodus is from two Greek words, ek or out of, hodos or the road, the way. Exodus is the road out of bondage. Not only Egyptian bondage, by the way, but the spiritual bondage that we all encounter. If you feel trapped tonight, if sin has a hold on you that you can't seem to shake, if you are looking for a way out tonight, then take heart. Exodus means the way out. This is the book for you. Exodus opens as Genesis closes. Jacob and his family joined Joseph in Egypt. Originally, 70 people settled in the land of Goshen, the northeast corner of Egypt. They planned to wait out the famine, but they never returned home to Canaan. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 tells us, The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. When we get over to Numbers chapter 1, a Hebrew census is taken, and Moses counts over 600,000 men 20 years and older. Adding the women and children, that would push the total population of Hebrews in Egypt upwards to around 2 to 3 million people. Egypt at the time had a population of around 7 million people. That means that at least one-third of the country's total population was of Hebrew descent. Now, this frightened the Egyptians. They looked at these Hebrew women. Man, these... These ladies are fertile myrtles. They're having kids left and right. If something isn't done about this baby boom, they're going to outnumber us. Verse 11 tells us what happened. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pytham and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Hey, this is what happens whenever God's people 
get persecuted. They multiply. If you check out the book of Acts, when the church gets attacked, it grows. Persecuting the church is like pouring gasoline on a fire. It causes the flame to burn brighter. You see, in times of ease, faith gets flabby. But when persecution comes, the true believers intensify their commitment. They streamline their service. They bulk up their faith. Under mounting persecution, the church of Jesus Christ becomes a clean, lean, witnessing machine. Verse 12 tells us, And they were in dread of the children of Israel. And so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. Jewish historian Josephus says that the Hebrew slaves were also used to build walls and canals and even the famous pyramids in Egypt. Hardship, though, and rigor didn't stunt their growth. And so Pharaoh comes up with another plan. Verses 15 and 16 tell us, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you should kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you shall live. She shall live. The birth stool was an Egyptian innovation in childbirth. In Egypt, women gave birth standing up rather than lying down. And they would stand over two stones or two bricks and they would push down on the stones. And so the pushing and the law of gravity kind of worked together to do the job. The Pharaoh, though, after having tried to use external hardship to stop the growth of these Hebrews, he contracts these midwives to sabotage the childbirths, to abort the new arrivals. Understand, this is Satan's strategy for the church. If he can't intimidate us from the outside, trust me, he'll try to infiltrate us from the inside. He'll send false teachers into the church to sabotage the growth, to abort the new births, the spiritual births that are occurring. The Hebrew midwives, though, refuse to cooperate with Pharaoh's plot. And God blesses them for their resistance. I'm sure they feared Pharaoh, but according to verse 17, they feared God more. And guys, let this be a reminder to us. Whenever the laws of the land violate the laws of God, we need to have the courage of these midwives. It is better to obey God than man. In chapter 1, verse 22, we're told, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Here he comes up with another plot. He keeps trying to stop the growth of these Hebrews. Josephus tells us that Pharaoh's actions were prompted by a prophecy. That one of his wise men, one of the magicians of Egypt, had predicted that a child was about to be born among the Hebrews who would deliver God's people. 
Pharaoh wanted to wipe out this infant deliverer. About this same time, a Hebrew couple by the name of Amram and Jochebed had a little baby boy. Josephus tells us that Moses was so beautiful, he was so handsome growing up, that while in the court of Pharaoh, people would go out of their way to come by the nursery just to admire his good looks and his natural characteristics. My parents tell me they had the same problem (laughs) with my brother. (laughs) Hebrews 11 verse 23 tells us, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. I never knew what an act of faith it was to hide a baby for three months until I had a baby of my own. This took incredible faith. What if baby Moses wakes up in the middle of the night and decides he wants everyone else to wake up with him? Babies do that, you know. What if he gets colic? What if he lets out a loud burp at the wrong time? What if dad sticks him with a safety pin while trying to change his diapers? What if dad sticks himself with the safety pin while trying to change his diapers? Hey, as far as I'm concerned, what happens later at the Red Sea was no more a miracle than hiding this baby for three months. Again, it's Josephus that tells us that Amram, Moses' father, also had a dream. And in it, God told him of his child's destiny, that he would be the deliverer of the Hebrew people. And this is why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 reads, By faith, Moses was hidden. Verse 3 of chapter 2 tells us, But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, waterproofed it in essence, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. Here is a work of God's divine providence. Pharaoh's daughter at the time may have been Queen Hatshepsut. She was a very powerful princess. We also know from history that she was barren and she lacked an heir to the throne. And it could well be that she looked to this baby from the bulrushes, baby Moses, as her heir. Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, may not have been that far off. DeMille based his his story, by the way, not only on the Bible, but also pulling in extra-biblical sources like Josephus. The Jewish Talmud has an interesting story about the baby Moses while he was in the court of Pharaoh. One day while playing on the king's lap, the baby grabbed the king's crown and threw it on the floor. Then he jumped down and stomped on it with his feet. If true, the story's true, 
The baby's antics were a preview of coming attractions. And it's interesting, the Egyptian magicians took it that way. From that day forward, they viewed Moses with skepticism, with suspicion. The king, though, laughed it off as merely a child's innocence. The magicians, though, they were concerned. And so they told Pharaoh, they said, look, this is serious. Pharaoh said, no, this is not. This is just a baby. In fact, this baby is so naive, if you put a hot coal up against a piece of gold, this baby wouldn't even know which one to choose. They said, well, why don't we try it? And so they put the hot coal and the piece of gold up in front of Moses, as the story goes. And we're told that Moses reached out and he grabbed the hot coal and he stuck it in his mouth, like babies often do. It burned his tongue and it caused a speech impediment that Moses will refer to later on. It'll be one of his excuses that he was slow of speech. Another act of providence occurs in verse 8. Pharaoh's daughter appoints Moses' own mother to nurse the child. And understand, in ancient times, the nurses uh, fed their babies for several years. That meant that Jochebed had plenty of opportunity to teach her son the truth of God in his early years. In Acts chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, Stephen says of Moses, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Pharaoh's daughter, in essence, adopted him. Enrolled him in Egypt's finest academies. He obtained the very best education that the secular world could offer. But it seems that it was from his natural mom that he learned the most important lessons. That he learned the lessons that in the truths that would be critical for his later development. And in Hebrews 11 verse 24, it all kind of comes to a head. We're told that when Moses came of age, he forsook Egypt. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And if he were in line for the throne, obviously he gave it up. That's encouraging to us moms and dads. If Jochebed had him for only a few years and yet she was able to instill in his heart the word of God and the truth of God and the reality of who he was and what he was and what God had called him to be, then when he came of age, it all changed him. Up until that time, he had been steeped in Egyptian philosophy But it was the truth of God that prevailed in his heart. And when he came of age, he followed the truth that he had learned from his mother. I find that to be so encouraging as a parent. It all came to a head in Moses' life when he saw an Egyptian one day beating a Hebrew. And in chapter 2, verse 12, we're told, So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. I'm sure that Moses had grown up under these prophecies concerning him. And here he saw this Hebrew being beaten and he said, it's time to spring into action. 
If I've been called to be the deliverer, let me do some delivering. But notice, we're told he looked this way and that. The implication is, is that Moses wanted to serve God, but he's trusting in sight, not faith. He looked this way and that. The next day, it's a Hebrew who spills the beans. And when word gets back to Pharaoh that Moses has killed an Egyptian, the king orders his arrest. And that's when Moses splits. He leaves Egypt and he heads for Midian. The prince of Egypt becomes a fugitive, a wanted man. In Acts chapter 7, verse 25, Stephen again tells us of Moses' disappointment. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses had a sense of his destiny. And he wondered why his fellow Hebrews didn't recognize him as their deliverer. You see, Moses is the classic case of a man who wants to serve God, but he wants to do it in his own flesh and in his own efforts. He is trusting in sight, not faith. Moses has a lot to learn. He has spent 40 years in the wilderness. I'm sorry, 40 years in the schools of Egypt. Now God is about to enroll him for the next 40 years in the school of brokenness. It's interesting, Genesis 46 verse 34 told us that the Egyptians despised shepherds. They looked down on them. And guess what Moses now becomes? A shepherd. You see, Moses has to be broken. He has to be humbled before he can be used. He has to understand that it's not enough to just say, I want to serve God. We must serve God in His way at His time. Moses has to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. To trust God, not his own strength. And God is about to turn Moses from a man of sight into a man of faith. The last few verses of chapter 2 tell us what happens to Moses in Midian. He defends the daughters of a man named Reuel, or Jethro, as we'll learn later. He marries one of Jethro's daughters, a woman named Zipporah, and together they have a son by the name of Gershom. And we're told in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and and the cry came up to God. And so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, understand, God feels compassion whenever he sees human suffering. But what moves him to action is not compassion, but covenant. God loves everyone, but not everyone is in a covenant relationship with God. Are you in a covenant relationship with God? Have you come to God on His terms? Have you committed yourself 
to His will. If you haven't committed yourself to Him, what makes you think He's going to commit Himself to you? It's the covenant that moves God to action. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, 600 years earlier, God had told Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Well, the 400 years of affliction is now over. God has heard the cries, and he has remembered the covenant, and even now he is preparing a deliverer, a man by the name of Moses. Now imagine, you and your family are out on a picnic. You're in a green, grassy meadow. You're spreading out the blanket. You're popping the top off of one of those big barrels of Kentucky Fried Chicken. When suddenly you look through the trees, and there you see a strange sight. There's an azalea bush. It's on fire. But there's no oxidation. The bush is not consumed. You walk up to the bush. You're told to take your tennis shoes off. You're on holy ground. You comply. Then you're told that you're to buy an airline ticket to Beijing, China. You're to walk across Tiananmen Square into the Communist Party headquarters. You're to barge right into the premier's office without an appointment, and you're to demand that he empty his jails of all his religious prisoners. Would you be ready? <laughs> that would be a pretty tall call. And yet that is exactly the equivalent of what God tells Moses to do. At the time, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the earth. The Pharaoh, the world's most powerful leader. And the Pharaoh, as with the premier of China, would certainly be hostile to his cause. God says to Moses in verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses replies, Who am I that I should go? Wow, what a change in this man Moses. No longer the eager young prince of Egypt ready to deliver the Hebrews through his own strength. Now he's been humbled. Now he's been broken. Who am I that I should go? A.W. Pink writes, Moses at 80, and he was 80 years old at the time, was not so eager as he was at 40. Solitude had sobered him. Keeping sheep had tamed him. He saw difficulties in himself, in the people, in his task. He had already tried once and failed. While in Egypt, Moses thought he was God's gift to the Hebrews. But his 40 years in the wilderness has now humbled him. D.L. Moody summarized Moses' life as follows. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody. Forty years in the desert learning he was a nobody. And forty years showing what God can do when a somebody discovers he is a nobody. I like that. Guys, God always uses 
what's broken, what's little, what's defeated. And Moses was all of the above. In Egypt, Moses was full of himself. In Midian, he came to an end of himself. Now on the mountain, he meets God. And he leaves filled with the glory of God. But make no mistake about it. You cannot be full of God if you're full of yourself. And this is what Moses had to discover. He is filled with the glory of God only after he comes to the end of himself. Horeb is the mountain range. Sinai is the actual peak. About 7,500 feet above sea level. Looks like a rock of Gibraltar out in the wilderness. Here on this mountain, in the face of God's glory, Moses takes off his sandals. God is here. He's on holy ground. Exodus chapter 3 verse 2 reveals an interesting detail. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Now, the voice that speaks identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, we're told, he is the angel or the messenger of the Lord. What gives? Well, often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is in reality a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what's happening here, that it was actually our Lord Jesus that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And this is so fitting when you realize the symbols and the typology here. Understand, fire is symbolic of God's judgment. Fire burns up whatever is combustible. The bush, which by the way, the word bush here in the Hebrew could be translated thorny bush, Represents the curse. You remember the curse from man's sin was what? There would be thorns and thistles. And so a burning bush that burns but isn't consumed. Think about it. Sin is judged but the sinner is not consumed. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of grace. That's a picture of Jesus Christ. For on the cross, our sin is burned up. But when you come to Christ, you're saved. You're not consumed. The sin is consumed, but you're not consumed. The bush burns, but it doesn't burn up. That's grace. Sin is judged, but the sinner is saved. We find that in Christ. Jesus is our burning bush. In verse 13, Moses asked God for his name. He wants to be able to tell the Hebrews who sent him. In verse 14, God reveals his forever name. I am who I am. God says to Moses to tell the Hebrews, I am has sent you. I am is the present tense of the verb to be. And it speaks of God's autonomy. God needs nada. He depends on no one. God is totally self-sufficient in and of Himself. He is truly the great I am. You are the great I ain't. God is the great I am. 
You remember, Moses felt so inadequate. He said, who am I? In essence, God answers him, it doesn't matter who you are. I'm going to be with you. I am has sent you. Moses needs to forget about who he is and get lost in who God is. (laughs) That's what we all need to do. We lose our own inadequacies when we get lost in God's sufficiency. Moses was great, not because he was a self-made man, but because he was a God-made man. And remember, it took God 40 years to make a Moses. When an artist paints a masterpiece, he can't be rushed. When Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, it took him four years. Likewise, when God makes a man, he takes his time. His work can't be rushed. We get impatient. Oh, Lord, we want to grow. But hey, God has his timing. God is working. You trust him. In chapter 4, verse 1, Moses is still tossing out excuses. And he says, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. And God here bolsters Moses' sagging confidence with three signs that he can take with him. God tells Moses to throw down his rod, his shepherd's staff, and as soon as he does, it turns into a snake. Moses is told to pick it up, and it turns back into a rod. As we said this morning, it's possible that the snake was a cobra, which was a sign of Pharaoh. His crown was fashioned as a coiled cobra. The sign was a reminder that God would soon subdue the Pharaoh as Moses had subdued that staff. Moses gets a second sign. God tells him to do a Napoleon impersonation and stick his hand up under his coat, you know. He pulls it out and guess what? It's leprous. It's diseased. Then he tells him to put it back again. This time he pulls it out and it's been clean. Isn't it interesting? His hand becomes leprous when he sticks it close to his heart. That's man's problem. At the heart of our problem is a problem with our heart. Man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Jeremiah tells us. God, though, has the cure for man's sinful heart. A third sign is Moses' ability to draw out water from the Nile and it turn into blood, and we're going to see that a little later. There's another excuse, though, that we find in verse 10. Moses says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Possibly that coal that he stuck in his mouth as a child. Who knows? I am a little suspicious here, though, of Moses' excuse. Back again in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, in Stephen's sermon, and it's really one of the best commentaries on the Old Testament. Stephen says that Moses was mighty in words and deeds. Kind of gives Moses away here. If you're so slow of speech, why are you mighty in words, according to Stephen? 
Moses, though, could have had a stuttering problem. Maybe he was a member of the NSP, the National Stuttering Project. This is a real organization. They have 15 chapters now in the Pacific Northwest. The NSP has turned into America's 2.6 million population of stutterers. It has turned into their lobbying group. And the NSP now lobbies for stutterers, one of their great successes. According to their organization is that they are responsible for getting Porky the Pig cartoons banned from a television station in Oakland, California. That's that, 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 that's all, folks. At least it is for Porky in Oakland, California. Well, Moses claimed to be an original member of the National Stuttering Project. I think it was an excuse. In response, God makes a profound statement. Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now, here is one of the strongest statements on the sovereignty of God in all Scripture. In other words, nothing happens apart from God's will. Congenital diseases, birth defects, are in a sense a consequence of man's original sin, but nevertheless, God has the power to prevent them. God is sovereign even over heredity. And so, when a birth defect occurs, we can at the very least assume that God has allowed it for a purpose. The point to Moses, though, is this, that if God makes a mouth then he could cure a stutter. Moses' excuse really isn't an excuse at all. If God has called you, God will equip you. If God has called you to a task, God will equip you and make you fit for that task. Your deficiencies are not an excuse when the great I am has sent you because he is self-sufficient and he can make you such. Going back, though, to verse 11. How wrong is it then for parents to abort a baby just because it was born with a handicap or a birth defect? God says, who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Does man know better than God? Hey, that the truth be known, we all have handicaps. We all are born with birth defects. We are all born with one huge birth defect. That's a sin nature. And unless, unless if you don't think it's a big deal, unless Jesus fixes the problem, you're going to go to hell. It is a big deal. Modern man plays God. When babies are slaughtered and killed, when birth defects and when congenital diseases are excuses for our convenience. In verse 12, God tells Moses, Now, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you 
what you shall say. Until now, God has been dealing with legitimate excuses. But understand, when God calls you, the one thing that he won't tolerate is unwillingness. And this is why God gets so angry now with Moses. Because Moses tells God in verse 13, Oh, my Lord, please sin by the hand of whomever else you may sin. Now he's getting real honest. God, I just don't want to go. Send somebody else. God is patient with us to a point. As long as our excuses are legit, he'll shore, shore up our inadequacies with assurances and signs, just as he did Moses. But if the problem is unwillingness, God has different solutions. Until now, Moses has been expressing why he feels he can't go. Now he's saying he won't go, and there's a big difference. And God gets angry with this, I won't go. You see, repentance is possessing a willing heart. Yes, you might have problems, you might have deficiencies, but everyone can be willing. Finally, Moses agrees to go, and in verse 20 we're told, Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. What a critical point here. Before it was the rod of Moses, after he's thrown it down, it now has become the rod of God. And the only difference between the rod before and the rod now is its ownership. It's the same rod. The difference now is that God owns it, not Moses. And the issue in our lives, guys, the critical issue is ownership. God wants to use your talents. He wants to use your abilities. But to whom do they belong? Have you thrown them down? Have you given them over to God? This rod became powerful because it's now the rod of God. It's dedicated to him. At the end of chapter 4, Moses and his family stop on the road to Egypt for a little emergency surgery. And this is really a bizarre story. You've read it. We're told that the Lord sought to kill Moses until his Midianite wife, Zipporah, circumcises their son. Notice now, God is going, Moses is going to fulfill a covenant. And you remember the sign of that covenant. It was circumcision. Moses is going to fulfill a covenant that God has made with a nation when he has yet to institute that covenant in his own family. See that? And God is not happy with that. Apparently, Zipporah has been resistant to this Hebrew custom and practice, this practice of circumcision. And it was not until her husband was near death that she finally caved in and obeyed God and circumcised her child. Now, men, I want this to be a lesson to us. For apparently, according to this story and other passages in the Bible, God holds the man responsible for the spiritual direction of the family. Here's a good case. Zipporah was in rebellion, but who did God seek after? Who did he come after? He came after Moses. 
Your wife might be in rebellion doing all kinds of bad things, but God's going to come after you, Dad, you husband. You're responsible for your family. You are the head of the home. We like to quote that. Until God comes after us. When it comes to spiritual authority in the home and in the church, always remember, the buck stops with the buck. Well, when Charlton Heston arrives in Egypt, he appears before Pharaoh. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. In verse 3, he adds, Let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God. And here's another principle we, we need to catch. God's deliverance is never an end in itself. When God delivers you out of one thing, His intention is to deliver you into something better. God delivers you out of one relationship. But His goal is to deliver you into a better, godly relationship. Moses wanted to take Israel out to sacrifice. God wants to lead them out of bondage, but guess where he's taking them? He's taking them to worship. God never leads us out of something that he doesn't lead us into something better. Pharaoh answers, I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. This Pharaoh was probably Amenhotep II, who reigned in Egypt for 26 years. His mummy was found in 1898, and if you'd like to check out what he looked like, you can go to the city of Thebes, and you can see the mummy lying in the museum. But for me, he will always look like Yul Brenner. <laughs> always. Yul Brenner was the perfect Pharaoh. Remember his famous line? Here, here's my philosophy. Here's my philosophy for raising teenagers. We don't argue about it anymore. And this is also what I now say when my wife wants the checkbook. <laughs> By the way, she's in the nursery tonight. <laughs> Obviously, the Pharaoh doesn't just roll over for Moses. He retaliates. He punishes the Hebrews on account of Moses. He forces them to make the same number of bricks, but while gathering their own straw. And needless to say, the Hebrews become extremely angry at Moses. He's doing more harm than good. Man, this is the final straw. Moses is upset, he feels let down, he's discouraged. 
It seems that Moses thought that he would just walk in and Pharaoh would comply. I don't think Moses really understood the battle. God tells him in chapter 7, verses 3 and 5, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. God's purpose in Egypt was not just to deliver the Israelites. He had some points that he wanted to make in the process. God proves to Egypt and to all of her neighbors that he is the one true God. In fact, the ten plagues were not chosen at random. They each targeted a different Egyptian deity. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God says, Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. In fact, what goes on in Egypt is a microcosm, really, of the spiritual warfare that's been raging since creation. God versus the serpent, the cobra, or Satan. And this is a main event in the struggle between the power of God and the occult practitioners in Egypt. In chapter 7, verse 10, and encouraged Moses returns to Pharaoh. This time he throws down his rod. It turns into a snake. But amazingly, the Egyptians also throw down their rods. They duplicate the miracle. But verse 12 records a startling sight. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. <laughs> Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? God wins round one. But notice the power of the sorcerers. Notice this. This is no sleight of hand what they do either. They were able to turn their rods into snakes as well. Hey, Satan is powerful. His influence is real. Obviously, God is greater and more powerful, but Satan does have power nevertheless. Notice, though, Pharaoh's reaction to God's victory. Verse 13, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them. And this is going to cause a ten-round fight. The first of the ten plagues occurs at the end of chapter 7. The Nile River was sacred to the Egyptians. Each year its banks flooded, irrigating the land and bringing silt that made the soil fertile and fruitful. The Egyptians believed, too, that the Nile River was the bloodstream of Osiris, the god of the underworld. And that's why God struck the waters of the Nile and turned it into blood. God was mocking their false gods, their pagan beliefs. God is saying, hey, I'll make Osiris bleed, all right. The Egyptians also worshipped the crocodile. And so this was an assault on their sacred habitat. And when neither Osiris or the crocodiles were able to protect their environment, it demonstrated what a croc their beliefs really were. <laughs> Verse 13 says, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He was in denial. Denial. <laughs> Thought I'd try it again tonight. 
The second plague was a proliferation of frogs. Understand the goddess Hecti was represented as a frog. Frogs came with the floods, and it was a symbol of prosperity. In Egypt, you kiss a frog, and you get a princess, not a prince. Look, though, at chapter 8, verse 3. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. Imagine coming home after a hard day at work, slipping in between the sheets, and there being a green, slimy frog climb up your leg. Frogs, frogs, everywhere frogs. Blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Again, God is mocking their beliefs. He's saying, hey, if you want to worship frogs, have a few. Have a few. They're yours. Harry Rimmer provides a vivid description. Catch this. Like a blanket of filth, the slimy, wet monstrosities covered the land until men sickened at the continued squashing crunch they were forced to walk on. If a man's feet slipped on the greasy mass of their crushed bodies, he fell into an indescribably offensive mass of putrid uncleanness. And when he sought water to cleanse himself, the water was so solid with frogs, he got no cleansing there. (laughs) Who says reading a Bible commentary is boring? I mean, you would be driving your car down the road and, and suddenly all these frogs would hit you and they'd shut down your engine and you'd have to get towed. Pharaoh tells Moses to stop the frogs and he'll let the people go. But as soon as the plague passes, he reneges on his promise. Another round of battle becomes necessary. The third plague is not nice, it's lice. The Greek historian Herodotus makes the point that the priests of Egypt were particularly concerned with lice. To them, this was the ultimate uncleanness and would disqualify them from all of their religious rites and rituals. Thus, this plague made it impossible for them to worship their gods or to cry out to their gods for help. God has such a sense of humor. He is making his point so well. It's also interesting that this was the first plague that the sorcerers of Pharaoh could not duplicate. We're told in verse 19, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, Hey, we give up. This is the finger of God. Suddenly the magicians and the sorcerers become believers. They know when they're licked. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He's a tough nut to crack. The fourth plague is a plague of flies. The Septuagint, or the Greek, it gets worse. The Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, puts it dog flies. 
And the dog flies in Egypt were bloodsuckers. They carried disease and they caused blindness. This plague was far worse than a few flies at the family picnic. These flies swarmed all over Egypt, except in the land of Goshen. And remember where the Hebrews lived. In Goshen. You see, God protected His people from these plagues. They came upon the Egyptians, but God's people were spared. The fifth plague is mad cow disease. Diseased livestock. Understand, the most sacred of all the Egyptian deities was the bull. The temple of Ta has been discovered in the city of Memphis. And there the sacred bull, or Api, was kept. And when one bull died, there were 26 qualifications by which they would choose the next bull. But when God strikes the livestock, all the bulls die. And the fifth plague proved that their worship was nothing but bull. You know, the only people in Egypt that were happy about this fifth plague were all the Chick-fil-A owners. Amazing. The sixth plague is the plague of boils. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. Now, there are commentators who believe that Moses crashed a pagan ceremony where the Egyptian priests were making sacrifices to their gods to ward off these plagues. And so it's the ashes of their sacrifice that bring the boils. See what God is doing? He's mocking and he's attacking the gods of the Egyptians. Verse 12 reads, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them. Now, until now, it's Pharaoh who's hardened his own heart. But now God hardens his heart. You see, if God hadn't hardened his heart, the Pharaoh would have let the Hebrews go just to escape the plagues. He would have gotten off the hook, in essence, without learning the lesson. You see, God is going to keep the pressure on the Pharaoh until he admits that the God of the Hebrews is the one true God. That's, his whole, that's God's whole point. You see, God is, has a bone to pick with the Pharaoh, and he's not going to let him off the hook until he learns his lesson. You know, we're starting to get the impression here that it's no longer the Pharaoh holding the Hebrews in bondage. In reality, now it's God holding the Pharaoh in bondage. And let's be understood. God will keep the pressure on us until he makes his point. So many times we want to just confess. Oh, God, I'll I'll just confess. I, I want to get rid of the consequences of my sin. But we don't learn the lesson. God wants us to surrender our will. And God will harden our heart in order to break our back when it's necessary. God won't settle for half-hearted confessions. God will not stop until we've gotten the point, until we've recognized Him as sovereign and supreme over our lives, until we have bowed our knee to God. That's what He's after in your life. Not just that you utter some confession so that you can escape the consequences of your sin. He wants you to bow your knee. He wants you to submit your life. He wants you to bring every area of your life 
under the control of the one true God. The seventh plague is the hell. Well, it's all been H-E-L-L up to this point, but this is the H-A-I-L. And verse 23 tells us, The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Except in the land of Goshen. And God manifests His power and protection at the same time. Understand, there is also a prophetic element to these ten plagues. In the last days, God is going to pour out His judgment on this wicked world and its ruler, the Antichrist. And guess what? Egypt is a type of the world and the Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist. And all ten plagues have parallels to what occurs in the book of Revelation in the Great Tribulation. Remember in Revelation, the hundred-pound hailstones, the locusts, the boils that break out, the three frogs that torment the world, the darkness, the rivers turn to blood. Remember also, there are two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and there were two witnesses of God in Egypt. Who? Moses and Aaron. In Revelation, people harden their hearts. Satan works counterfeit miracles. The world is judged, but the Jews are protected. The parallels are numerous. The eighth plague is the locusts. And locusts are little grasshoppers. Grasshopper-like animals, they, they travel in swarms. They cover the ground like a blanket, usually four to five inches deep, and they're ferocious eaters. A locust can eat its body weight in a single day. That would be like me eating 165 pounds of food in one day. It's amazing. Hey, the locusts provide the knockout punch. If there's anything left to the Hebrew, I mean to the Egyptian economy, the locusts consume it. And the Pharaoh's advisors realize it. They tell him in chapter 10, verse 7, Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Man, we're down for the count. Let them go. Pharaoh calls for Moses, but his concessions are minimal. He'll let the men leave to worship God, but not the women and children. And hey, that's not enough. Hadn't got your point yet, buddy. The ninth plague is darkness. God turns out the lights on Egypt. And in verse 21, God says to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. Oh, man, it was so dark that the darkness just kind of crawled up over you and covered you like a blanket. You ever been, it's ever been so dark where you could feel it? Too dark to light a candle, too dark to see your hand right in front of your face. The ninth plague was an assault on the sun god of Ra or Ramses. Verse 23, though, tells us, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And this was probably God's light that would later travel with them in the wilderness, the fire by day, the Shekinah glory of God. All ten plagues were huge victories. Joshua 24 verse 14 indicates 
that some of the Hebrews had adopted the idols of Egypt, that the Hebrews had also begun to worship idols. And so the plagues on Egypt proved God's superiority not only to the Gentiles, but also to the Hebrews as well. The tenth plague occurs in chapters 11 and 12, the death of the firstborn. After the darkness, Pharaoh agrees to let Moses take the women and children and go out to worship God, but they have to leave behind their livestock. And Moses says no. He insists on a total exodus. Guys, God works total deliverances, not partial. It's interesting, prior to coming to Egypt, God told Moses in chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, that it would come down to the firstborn. This would be the showdown. That Egypt's firstborn would die in order to free God's firstborn, Israel. The final attack was against the Pharaoh himself because Pharaoh in Egypt and his firstborn heir were considered deities. And God here deals a death blow to that illusion. In chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, Moses tells Pharaoh what's about to happen. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. Pharaoh hears this, this ominous warning, and yet he still refuses to bow to the will of God. His heart is hardened one more time. Pharaoh's stubbornness has now cost him his kingdom and it is about to cost him his own son. And I want to ask you tonight, what is your stubbornness costing you? Up until now, it's hurt you personally. Perhaps it's hurt you professionally. But whom else is it going to hurt Until you get the point, I'm warning you, eventually it's going to cost you someone that you dearly love. Stubbornness can do that. Death was determined on all the firstborn in Egypt, not just of Egypt. And that's important. You see, the Hebrews were as guilty of sin, even of idolatry, as were the Egyptians. They too were under the death penalty. In fact, we're all under the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. But God was merciful. And that night, He provided a way out, an exodus. Each Hebrew family sacrificed a lamb, and they spread its blood on the two doorposts and the thresholds of the house. In chapter 12, verse 12, God warns that He will pass through Egypt to execute judgment But in verse 13, he says, he will pass over the houses where the blood has been applied. He'll pass through. But if you apply the blood, he'll pass over. And this is why Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, our Passover. For when you trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, and by faith you apply the blood of Christ 
to the doorposts and thresholds of your heart. Because of that blood, God's judgment passes over you. Remember, salvation that night had nothing to do with the purity of the people in the house. In fact, if you were a moral person, and you assumed that judgment would pass over your house because of your goodness, kiss your big brother goodbye. Because he would die. Salvation came to the people not because they were good and pure and noble. Salvation came for one reason. Because they had faith in God's promise. They took the blood and they applied it to the doorposts and thresholds of their house. And salvation comes to people's lives today the very same way. There's no difference. It's not because of your goodness and your purity. It's because of the blood of Jesus that you have applied by faith to your heart. That's what causes God's judgment to pass over. This is how eternal destinies are decided today. Trust in your own merit and you are a goner. But trust in the blood of Jesus. And the judgment will pass over. In chapter 12, God institutes the feast of Passover. That night in Egypt, the Hebrews ate the sacrificial lamb, along with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. They ate the unleavened bread as a symbol of their faith. They would be leaving Egypt the very next day, and they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. It was a statement of faith. This is also why we're told in verse 11, you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. By faith, they were ready to move the very next day. They went to bed that night with their sandals on. In verse 14, God calls the Passover a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. And even today, Jews all over the world celebrate Passover. It was on the night before Jesus was crucified that he celebrated Passover with his disciples. And that night he gave it new meaning, which we memorialize today. The wine, which represented the lamb's blood, Jesus said, spoke of his blood. The bread, the faith component, the unleavened bread, speaks of our faith in his sacrifice. That night the destroyer, came upon every house in Egypt where the blood was not applied. Imagine every house in suburban Atlanta losing its firstborn. Every firstborn of every kitty, you know, litter of kitties, litter of dogs, firstborn died. Firstborn, every family died. Amazing. What an enormous tragedy. Historical evidence exists for the judgment of the firstborn. Pharaoh Amenhotep II was succeeded by Tumosi IV, who apparently was not his firstborn son. It's assumed that Amenhotep's firstborn and original heir died in this tenth plague. After midnight, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and told them to go with all their people and possessions. And in verse 36, we're told that the Egyptians were so glad to see the Hebrews go that they gave them gold and silver and clothing. It was a peaceful plundering. These materials, though, are important because these are what the Hebrews used to build their tabernacle in the wilderness. Verse 37 tells us that 600,000 men plus children left the land of Egypt. That's probably a total of 2 to 3 million people. 
In addition to the Hebrews, a mixed multitude went out of Egypt. These were the Egyptians who had jumped on the Moses bandwagon, along with the slaves from other countries, along with the Egyptians that had intermarried with the Hebrews. According to verse 41, the Hebrews left Egypt the same day that they entered 430 years earlier. They left on the anniversary of Jacob's arrival. It was God's way of affirming that he had never forgotten them, that his covenant with them was sure and true. God loves his people. And God will deliver his people out of bondage. That's why we need to look to our deliverer, Jesus Christ. He alone can break the powerful forces that want to keep us enslaved. Jesus is faithful. He can be trusted. You can take the promises of Jesus to the bank. As Yul Brynner might say, Let it be written. Let it be done. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that you have written down your promises and they are faithful and true. And we trust in them tonight. Continue to do your work in us, Lord, as we walk with you, as we grow in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Give everyone a safe trip home tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.